Even if you believe you are the only one out there fighting for your cause, chances are you are planting some seeds for someone else to pick up that budding flower. I would have loved to have been a student and had a disability cultural center. I tried to create a club and it had more people, in, you know, but because I tried, I think it opened up pathways for the later generations to come on and take that baton and carry things forward. Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast, brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and changemakers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. In this episode, we speak with Tiffany Yu, CEO and founder of Diversibility, an award-winning, entirely disabled-run and led social enterprise to elevate disability pride and a content creator with over 200,000 followers across various social media platforms. She's a three times TEDx speaker and has been named a TikTok API trailblazer, a LinkedIn top voice in disability advocacy, and a well and good change maker. Her first book, The Anti-Ableist Manifesto, will be published by Hachette in 2024. Yeah, so I call this my disability origin story. And mine, and I will put an asterisk in, in this to say that we don't owe anyone our stories. You know, there might be trauma, there might be some unresolved things. So I like this question of like, what's your story? Because it lets people share however much they feel comfortable sharing. So mine, you know, the short version, you can watch the long 10 minute version, uh, the TEDx Bethesda talk. But for me over Thanksgiving weekend, I was involved in a car accident where my dad was driving. He unfortunately passed away. And I acquired a slew of injuries, including breaking a couple bones in one of my legs. Those bones then healed, permanently paralyzing one of my arms, my dominant arm at the time. And uh, much later being diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, which is a mental health disability. And I, and I like to mention that because uh, one of the things I'm learning about being the daughter of Asian immigrants is that mental health and mental illness wasn't really considered a thing. And so that also meant that a lot of us don't receive the res the support that we need earlier in our lifetime because you can't see it per se. It's not It's not obvious or apparent. You talked about that without referencing how young you were. Oh, <laughs> I mean, there are so many details. It's like, how, how, how many details? Yeah. And so um, I was nine when that happened. And I call this, I call this compounded grief. So I actually think this is more than a disability origin story. It's a story about grief. And it's grief in a lot of different ways. And I know, Jay, you've been on your own grief journey as well, but grief in terms of how many of us understand it, in terms of losing a loved one, my dad, there's grief, I call this disability grief, in terms of changes in my body. I wasn't born with the disabilities that I now have. And then grief in terms of how many of us understand childhood trauma, or I call it like the loss of childhood innocence. You said something else in there too, which fascinated me because I'm sure I've heard it before, but I missed it entirely. You said your dominant hand. Mm -hmm. You had to relearn a lot in your life after that point. And not only the loss of a loved parent, um, not only healing, but having to rethink the way you interacted with the world, at least in writing. What was that like? Mm. 
you know, sometimes I'll have people come to me and they say, wow, I can't even imagine having to relearn how to do all of these things with my non-dominant hands. And I respond in a joking way, but also kind of serious to say, if you literally had no other choice, you would figure it out. And so there is part of me because I had an opportunity about a year ago, actually two things, I'll share two quick stories with you. One is, uh, and these both happened at a camp where I met a lot of other people who have injuries similar to mine. And there were a lot of pediatric surgeons there who work with uh, kids who have my injury. And one of the first I'll share is tied to the TEDx Bethesda talk. So uh, I met a pediatric surgeon there who said, hey, Tiffany, I watched your TEDx talk. And I don't have a great history with medical professionals. So I said, okay, great. And then I walked away pretty quickly. And he came back after me and he said, Tiffany, because of you and that talk, we actually ended up incorporating a mental health, a mental health uh, therapist or a mental health support into our entire care team. So in addition to the hand surgeon, the neurosurgeon, the occupational therapist, the physical therapy, it's a whole team. They now have a mental health therapist. And I actually didn't realize from that 2018 talk that that could be a byproduct of it, that someone, that it would reach someone and it would change the way that they run their medical practice because kids are kids. And when you're going through all these surgeries, there's a mental health component to that too. So I know that digressed a little, but I wanted to make sure I included that because of the way we met and to be able to see the impact that that talk has had on so many, so many different people in ways I couldn't have imagined. The second story I wanted to share is because I was at this camp with a lot of other people who had, so my injury, it's called a brachial plexus injury, who had these brachial plexus injuries. It was so fascinating to witness how different our lives were. So I also keep in mind that at nine years old, and I would consider myself, I became a digital native as a teenager into adulthood. So the internet was in its nascent stages, smartphones didn't exist. I only learned how to type after the accident. And so I didn't learn how to type with two hands and then have to adapt, right? And so I think about, there's a little bit of privilege embedded in there in that I I only had to relearn how to write, right? And And the fascinating, the other fascinating thing I'll mention is a couple of years ago, I bought or I acquired a one-handed cutting board. And a lot of the comments I received when I shared that I had this one-handed cutting board was they were like, why didn't your occupational therapist tell you about the one-handed cutting board? And I was like, I'm pretty sure at nine years old, you do not want to be handed, handing me a knife and teaching me how to cook. Right. <laughs> um, and so there were still at nine years old, there were still some life things that I do now that I hadn't learned how to do like cutting an onion or a tomato or, you know, a, an avocado, which now in my adulthood, I've only learned how to do as someone who can only use one arm. Even as you're illustrating these stories, people can't see this if they're just listening to the podcast, but you have a big smile on your face. And it's also interesting because you've used a photo, so I don't think it's sharing something I shouldn't, of you on a gurney, I think probably shortly after this accident, and there you are with a big smile on your face. And you've written about positivity, and I'd, I'd love to dive into that um, later, but I'm curious, was that you also before? So it's hard for me to remember myself at eight, but I'm curious, do you remember the eight-year-old or the seven-year-old Tiffany, and was she also greeting the world with a smile 
Is that mm-hmm. is that just the way that you have navigated through life is just a part of your personality? Or is that also a mechanism for you to fight the good fight on the things that matter? Yeah, that it's I I appreciate you naming that because that's actually something I'm working to unlearn. So I think one of my mechanisms for after the accident was I would smile through hard things. And as a result, I actually think that is what ended up exacerbating what became PTSD was I swept it aside. I said, oh, it's okay. And then I would smile. And I know I have a great smile. I've had a lot of dental work done. Um, but but yeah, I think it's a, I mean, it's, it's fascinating because I think I know the picture that you're talking about. And actually every single time I look at it now at 35 years old of this nine-year-old Tiffany in this wheelchair, I actually feel really sad. And actually, sometimes I feel really sad if I watch if I watch that TEDx talk over again, because I can't believe that that nine-year-old girl is me. And I can't believe that I've been able to find so much meaning and purpose in and, and fulfillment and wholeness in who I am now, because I don't think at nine years old, that's how I felt. I feel like I felt very empty, but had to smile through it because... I wasn't sure if anyone else could understand what I was going through. We take so much from whatever stimulus we have. If it's our eyes, we tend to interpret things through our own lens as we look at things, including someone's smile. And then we take it often at face value. You just described what else might be happening in that nine-year-old girl's head. there's another part to all that, which maybe is masked or unmasked by that, which is agency. And I'm wondering if you already had agency as a kid. I mean, that's kind of a strange question. But uh, later, as you get to Georgetown, I know it's a big leap to go from nine to Georgetown, but you were already you know, deciding you were going to do something. I mean, about a bunch of things and including diversibility. But did you already have a sense of agency? Mm. I'll share I'll share a story which I can't tell if it's a hap, it's it's a neutral story. I'll I'll let your listeners decide. So um so after the accident I had broken my femur and my tibia. Uh the femur is like the big bone in your thigh and your femur is it's a pretty hefty bone so to break it it must have been pretty severe. And then your tibia is right below your knee. So I had a cast that went from my toes up until my hip that covered my whole leg. And I wore that for about four months. So after I left the hospital, my my bedroom that I grew up in was a couple stairs up. So my family had moved a mattress to the living room so that I wouldn't have to transfer. But what they didn't want to do was they didn't want to help me go to the bathroom. So one of the things that I learned how to do was, so I was in a wheelchair for four months. So uh, while the bones of my leg healed. So one of the things I learned how to do was to get myself out of my wheelchair onto the ground. And I, I call it, but I butt slid. I don't, I, we can say, butt on here. So I would use my, my now, my now dominant arm. <laughs> I would lift my butt up a little, and then I would move my leg in the whole cast over. And then I would shift up those couple of stairs to go to the bathroom in my childhood bedroom. And I still remember I had this, Halloween basket or this Halloween bucket, you know, when you go trick or treating, Mm -hmm. I flipped it upside down because when I sat on the toilet, I would rest my cast foot, uh, the heel of my foot onto the bucket. 
Right. Um, I don't know if I'd call that agency, but I think what I internalized at that point in time was that there were certain things my family was going to assist me with in my rehabilitation period and onward. And there were things that I was going to have to learn how to do. Uh, I don't know if this is tough love or, you know, I saw your facial expressions as I was explaining that, but, um, but moving the bed, they wanted to do helping me go to the bathroom. They wouldn't, but it also, I think it, what also instilled in me was, you know, and that wasn't related to whether or not I could use my arm, right. It was a, a different part of my body was that if I could figure out how to do that, because going to the bathroom was something I needed to do, then I could figure out how to do other things like learn how to write, learn how to type, learn how to put my hair up or tie my shoelaces. Mm-hmm. I, I do. I, you did see my expression. I was trying to figure out. I wonder if they knew that that's what they were doing. I wonder if there was a decision by the family that, you know what, this is this is one small measure where she'll have control and therefore we better stand back and let her do it. Or if they just didn't think about it, it's hard to know with our families. It, it's it's hard to know. I, I Looking back now, I think I have a lot of compassion that because it wasn't just me, I didn't share this, but it wasn't just me in the car accident. My sister and one of my brothers were also in the car as well. And I I feel everything for my mom. You know, we were ages nine to 14 uh, of, there were four kids in total. I can only imagine, I, I have a feeling she will never do a podcast, <laughs> but um, but I can only imagine what was going through her mind in terms of navigating all of these different things. And and my brother also experienced a handful of injuries as well, as well. And my sister, who I think was 12 or 13 at the time, had a little bit more consciousness enough to actually vocalize that she wanted to go to therapy. Um, but me at nine years old, I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't have I'd like they use the word agency. I feel like I didn't have the consciousness to know exactly what had happened, but I did have the agency enough to know here are the things my family will help me with. And here's what I need to figure out. I, I think I went into like problem solving mode rather than let's heal through this and, and reflect on how I'm feeling emotionally. Right. I, the way you're giving voice to this speaks to so much of what you've done in your work and which I, I do want to explore with you because it's, it gives people the chance to tell their own stories in their own ways, which is, um, which is a gift. And not everybody has been in a position where they've, they've maybe gone through that and then felt that they had the opportunity to tell the stories in their own way on their own terms, if they wanted to at all. Um, but again, there's, there's this young girl, she goes through this traumatic experience. So does her family. The trauma is shared. Then, you know, you go through high school and middle school, which I'm sure was traumatic enough, even if none of this had happened. And then you're off to Georgetown. So I just have to ask you, why'd you pick Georgetown? I mean, it's a great school, but how did that, how did that happen? What were you going there for in the first place? That's a good question. No one's ever asked it to me like that. So so I ended up getting into four schools. Uh, both of my brothers went to the University of Maryland. My sister went to the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Say all of those three three times quickly. And I'd also gotten into Cornell and the University of Michigan. I, and actually, this is so fun because I never get to go back this far. So I visited, and and I will say, as the youngest of four, and I and I am curious if my dad maybe instilled this in me, but my. My parents didn't grow up with much. They got married in their backyard in Bethesda. 
Uh, when my dad arrived in this in the seventies, he put like 70% down payment on a home. And I, I just, I just didn't know how my mom, who is now a, a single parent could support four kids through college, pretty much all at the same time. So I was very concerned about costs. And as, from that list that I shared, Georgetown is the most expensive option <laughs> of all of them. Uh, so interestingly enough, I decided to go to Maryland and I submitted my acceptance deposit there. And I remember going back into my childhood bathroom, the one that I learned how to butt slide my way to. And I cried because I realized that I wasn't making the decision for me. I was making it on behalf of the collective. And I feel very privileged that because I know I know student debt and all of those are very real things and they do impact the decisions that people make. But my mom came to me and she said, Tiffany, don't worry about cost. We will figure it out. You go where you want to go. And after I made that decision to go to Maryland and I cried about it, I realized, I think I made a mistake here. One of the things that I liked about Georgetown was that it felt, it felt like I could navigate it. It felt small enough. Maryland, huge. You have to take a bus across campus. So I went back to my, to my mom, I think. And I said, I think I actually want to go to Georgetown. I liked all the people that I met there. I didn't actually know that it was Jesuit, that it had a religious affiliation, but my connection with Georgetown was actually all of my SAT prep tutors were Georgetown students. So I said, oh, if they're smart enough to teach me how to, how to get through the SAT, then maybe this is a place I want to go. And actually in retrospect, so I withdrew that non-refundable deposit and Maryland was actually very kind about it. And they refunded me that. And I resubmitted my acceptance deposit to Georgetown. And this is one of those examples that I, that I always like to revisit because I'm like, life sometimes does give you second chances. If you, yeah, if you pursue them. So you, you did it. I mean, and, and then the good and thing. It, and it ended up being the best decision I could have made, right? Because I then decided to study finance and accounting and Georgetown was a big school for studying all of that. It's the place where I found my voice as a disability advocate, found community in a lot of different ways and took something I created in college into what I'm doing now. Right. And, and I, and I do want to hear about that, but you were studying business. So what was the draw to business? Were you one of these people who said, I just need to get down to wall street or what, what was going on? What was that about? So I originally went to Georgetown as a marketing major. And, uh, the first class you had to take was an accounting one-on-one class. And this was my introduction to financial statements. And this is, it's, it's going to sound funny, but this is public. I've, I've said this story before. My final exam, I got my balance sheet to balance. You had to, you were given like an income statement and cash flow, and you had to put your balance sheet together. And that felt amazing. <laughs> and after that, I said, this feels, this feels really good to have some clean financial statements. And I, I think this is what I want to study. But you know what, and, and this might be a little bit of a stretch, but what I really appreciated about finance was, you know, we live in a capitalistic society, money moves things, money is power, money also creates systemic change. 
if you want to if you want to take it that far in terms of whole industries can change when you see companies by each other and i think at the same time and maybe this is my my daughter of immigrants mentality i think i saw the way that my parents really had to navigate every dollar and i wanted to figure out is there a way i can learn to turn $1 into a dollar and 10 cents or a dollar 50 or $2 like mm-hmm. how how do people do that where did your parents come from i didn't ask you yeah so my dad is an immigrant from taiwan and my mom is a refugee from the vietnam war and they actually both met at gw at george washington university oh wow <laughs> And, and they were uh, thrifty, and I'm deducing that because you said your father saved 70% down on his first house, or so, which is pretty extraordinary for anybody. So these were people who, uh, you know, committed to doing something and did it. I mean, they, they saved and they, they, they earned, they saved, and they, they committed. Well, one, um, I, two, two quick things I'll share. One is my dad and I, you know, the memories I do have of him were mainly of garage sales. We would go always looking for a deal. But what I learned, which actually ties back to the disability space, was everything is worth something to someone. Hmm. And and I really appreciated that. And then that kind of ties to the other story, which is I never owned anything new. I think the first new thing that I owned was like a mattress when I became an adult. Um, Of course, like maybe some college supplies and stuff, but everything was secondhand and um and also when you're like the youngest of four it's like i think my parents have like seen it before and then by the time it gets to me so so yeah it they yeah i i'm so i don't know how to i don't know how to finish this thought other than the more that i learn about the sacrifices they had to make so that all four kids could be college educated. You know, that's mainly my mom. But the foresight that my dad had to say, I want to plant roots in Bethesda. And I'm and I didn't have to pay for my education until I went to college and seeing, you know, my friends who have young kids now thinking about which private school, which pre-kindergarten are we going to put 30K down for just makes me yeah, and who I I don't know what Bethesda looked like in the 1990s or 1980s, but but yeah, I think he I think my dad had had an idea that this is a place that I want my kids to be because also I'm Asian and we're we're a minority in Bethesda. It's a it's a very affluent Jewish town about 20 minutes outside of DC. Right. Um so i can now sort of get the picture if you're looking at a balance sheet and you can make all the numbers line up so it's not in the hole maybe that's and if that's really a thrill maybe that's more interesting than you know can i buy a share of something and have it turn into 50 million dollars if i'm lucky and you know um that's that's uh that's very interesting um especially the part where you talked about the garage sales because if if something has value, if everything has value to someone, um, that's that's also true about people, isn't it? I mean, every person has value, which we shouldn't have to say, but I'm not always sure that that's recognized. Mm. Um, so there you are at Georgetown. You are you. Um, so I'm sure you return. I'm, I'm becoming me. I'm becoming me. Right. You're I, be- I so you're becoming like, the yeah. Yes. Go ahead. 
And then, and then, uh, but you, somewhere along the path, you decided you also wanted to take part of that energy um, and form diversibility. Was it called that at first or? Yes. Yeah. So, so interestingly enough, I see myself as a community builder first. So a fun story is my freshman orientation at Georgetown. I'm walking down the sidewalk and I meet this woman, this fellow student that I had friended on Facebook before. And we had bonded over the fact that one of our parents was from Taiwan. So I met her I'm on the sidewalk and we run into a third person who is a, an incoming sophomore. And he, one of his parents is also from Taiwan. So I make an offhand remark and I say, we should start a Taiwanese club. This is me as like a pre-freshman. And so we actually started the Taiwanese club. Uh, the Chinese student association, the Chinese student Alliance had some opinions about that, but we, we, but we started and it's still around at Georgetown. And so from my freshman, sophomore, junior year, I was very actively involved in the Taiwanese American club. And fascinatingly enough, growing up in Bethesda, where I didn't know any other Taiwanese people, I learned what it meant to be Taiwanese there. And I also developed a sense of pride and community in the fact that I was Taiwanese. Like just because I was Taiwanese may have had totally different life experiences, but felt closer with someone else who was also Taiwanese. So come senior year, I turned to my roommate, who is my co-founder of the Taiwanese club. And I said, you know, that thing, that club that we started for the Taiwanese American students, I'm really curious if I could start a club for disabled students. There, there isn't one at Georgetown. And actually now that was 2009. Now we're in 2023, 14 years later, I got to go back to Georgetown and be the commencement speaker at their first George, uh, disability community graduation. And they said, Tiffany, started the first ever student club at Georgetown University for disabled students. And I didn't know that in 2009. I literally just thought, I know how to start clubs, so I'm going to start another club. So, so that was the beginning of, of diversibility at Georgetown. I have to ask you about this because uh, talk about diversity within any, any group, any cohort, people who are, and I don't know if you're using the same terminology today that you did then, but within the disabled student community in 2009, there's a lot of different people in there. I mean, just, you know, there weren't too many uh, Taiwanese American students at Georgetown at the time, but you've managed to find one another, but, but that you had that link. Um, it, but man, that must've been a broad range of students. Um, so how did they, how did they first react about coming together? Because they, they must have all thought that their experience was unique to them. Mm. So at the time, I knew I knew two other disabled students and I sent them an email and I said, hey, I'm thinking of starting a disability student club. Would you be interested? And I didn't hear from them. And if we've learned anything, silence is also an answer. And they could also just have been overwhelmed by emails because if if anyone remembers their university experience, it's too many emails. <laughs> and even now, probably too many emails. So um, so the people I thought who would join my club didn't want to join. So that, that kind of felt like strike number one. Strike number two was I remember telling some faculty members or some members of the Georgetown staff that I was thinking of starting a disability student club. And one of them said, oh, I know this other staff member at Georgetown who is really passionate about disability studies. You should go talk to her. So I go have a meeting with her and she goes, Tiffany, I love what you're trying to do, but I don't think Georgetown is ready yet. 
I think this idea is too radical, too forward thinking. That was strike number two. So I was like, you know what? I just need one third strike. And if nobody wants to join, then at least I tried. So the third potential strike uh, was I got invited to speak at uh, like the graduate program was looking at launching like a disability study certificate. So they had a student panel where they invited me and two other students to talk about disability at Georgetown. And so this mini conference that they brought together, they invited all of the DC area schools, American, Gallaudet, Howard, GW. And so at the end of the panel, I said, um, or sorry, two things. <laughs> One is that was actually the first time that panel was the first time I ever shared the story of the car accident publicly. That was, and I still remember the date. It was October 22nd, 2009. The car accident happened in 1997. So from 1997 until 2009, I didn't feel like my story mattered enough to tell anyone. And probably my mom didn't want anyone to, my didn't want people to know all these details about her family. So not only did that happen, at the end of the panel, I said, you know, I had this idea to start this disability student club, but I've talked to a couple people who I thought were going to join or be our first supporters and no one has expressed interest yet. So I don't think it's going to happen, but I just wanted to put it out there that I tried. And again, keep in mind, this is all the DC area schools and a lot of like staff and faculty. So the student from Gallaudet signs like, I'll join your club. This other student from DW is like, I'll be part of it too. The student from Gallaudet actually hands me a sheet of paper that says diversibility on it. And that and that became the name. So instead of starting Diversibility, the student club, I started Diversibility, the working group, which was some random, not random, everything makes sense later. Hmm. Different faculty members, not, no Georgetown students yet. So what ended up happening, I know this is long-winded, but I love... I've been thinking so much about our origins because I'll, I'll put this little sidebar in because today we have over 80,000 people who have opted in to not only follow us or be in our communities that I will never forget how hard it was to try to get one person to join in 2009. And you know what I think the difference is, is that so much of what I tried to do in 2009 was to make disability like cool. There's culture, there's pride, there's empowerment, there's community, there's history here. A lot of people couldn't grasp that yet. I, I do think I was ahead, ahead of my time, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so we started the, uh, we started the, we started a working group. So last thing I'll share is one of my Taiwanese American club members designed Diversibility's logo that we used up until 2021. So for 12 years, we used a logo. And this is where solidarity, cross-community solidarity comes in. My first members were my fellow Taiwanese-American club members who were showing up to support. And after a period of time, uh, we started putting up those flyers with the logo on it. I didn't put my name on it or anything, but we put an email address, which was diversibility at gmail.com. This is when Gmail like first started, so you could get whatever, whatever name you wanted. I started getting emails at that email address from people that I knew who had non-apparent disabilities. They had a vision disorder. They had a chronic illness. And then we started building from there. 
I did want to ask you about that. It, it, what was the biggest surprise? Maybe you're just labeling it right now that there must have been a lot of people out there who um, who were going through their own journey and you hadn't heard about it. But also maybe at that point you wouldn't have recognized it because you were a young person. Uh, you know, uh, these things weren't discussed because there was no group discussing them. So unless you saw someone with some visible thing that you would associate with disability, like a wheelchair, how in the world would you know? So yeah. what was the most surprising part as you started to see people join this group or sign up for the Gmail address yeah, or whatever? I, I whatever mean, I think, I think that was the surprising part was the fact that people that I had known who were my friends were going through things and had non-apparent disabilities that I didn't know about, right? We hadn't created that level of psychological safety, not only as a campus community, but even within my friendships, because I wasn't even apparent about mine and you can see my hand and it looks different, right? And so if I wasn't even leading by example, and I, I talk about this a lot in my work about leading by example so that you give you give permission if people feel like they need it to talk about the things that they that they are experiencing. But about 70 to 80% of disabilities are not apparent. So unless someone, you know, and, and there's a lot of talk now from other disability advocates about their own journey from hiding to now being more vocal about the things that they have. And just so that people who haven't thought about this hear it, what are some of the reasons why people don't talk about or hide these things? Mm. What is the discomfort? Is it the what is it what those who are not members of that disabled community might say? Is it what what I know there's probably a range, but yeah, well. yeah, that's that's a good question. I mean, there's a whole there could be a whole slew of reasons. So I, I'll share one cultural one and then I'll share one general one. So I know I've brought this up a lot, but I'm the daughter of Asian immigrants. But part of why I keep bringing that up is I'm learning so much more about how my mom and her culture viewed disability that made it so that I couldn't be free and liberated in mind. So if someone in your family, this is this is more uh, Eastern Asian culture, at least in my family, if someone in your family has a disability, it means that there was some bad luck or some curse in the family lineage that means that your whole family is bad luck or cursed for this to happen. So that could be one, that is a cultural reason for why a lot of a lot of people aren't that open. But I think a big part of it is that people, if part of the work that I'm trying to combat is how we think the disability experience is mutually exclusive from a lot of other things. So what I mean by that is if I'm disabled, it means I'm not capable. If I'm disabled, it means that I can't achieve or be a Georgetown student or work at Goldman Sachs or do the do what I've done. Right. And if you don't have receipts, I call I call them receipts. If you don't have, you know, and this could be why I went to this could be maybe subconsciously why I went to Georgetown. If I don't have a Georgetown, Goldman, Bloomberg, Davos, TEDx on my resume, you might make a lot of assumptions about not only my quality of life, but what you think I can achieve, what you think my goals are. And, and I will say for that period of time from nine years old until 21, I internalized a lot of other people's expectations of me and set them very low. I did not participate in physical education class. Um, one of the things, so 
pre nine years old, I loved rock climbing. I loved biking. That was something I always do with my dad in 2016, which is Tiffany at 28 years old. I relearned how to rock climb. I relearned how to bike. I want to get a bike and I want to name it after my dad, but like, again, not again, those are just some, some examples from my own life of where the expectations were set so low. So I counted myself out, said physical activity is not for me. Could have even said a career in financial services is not for me. Could have, you know, and, and so I think that if you have a non, if you have a disability that's not apparent, you have a privilege in a strange way to choose how you want to be perceived and choose how much you want to share. And if you see people who have apparent disabilities getting infantilized, getting desexualized, getting treated, I mean, infantilized is being treated, getting patted on the head, you know, spoken to very slowly and loudly, then that's going to impact how much how much you want to share. And I even think now, you know, um, there's something for women, it's the glass ceiling for Asians in the workforce, it's the bamboo ceiling. I don't know what we call it in the disability community, but part of why more people in the workplace aren't talking more about their disabilities is they think they'll be counted out of promotions. They'll reach some leadership ceiling that they that they won't be able to uh, to progress in their career. And that's why I think to tie a little bow on it. That's why I think it was so fascinating that the first place I worked at Goldman, Gary Cohn, who was the president of the whole company at the time, is dyslexic. And it's been Malcolm Gladwell has written about it. You know, you can go Google it. I'm not outing anyone. But to be able to work at a bank like Goldman and have the number two person there talking about the amount of time it takes for them to read a page or the type of support system that they have to be able to, you know, digest a lot of text and and that 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 felt good. That felt that made me want to be there. You can say a lot of other things about about the bank that I won't go into, but that felt really good. Well, and that's what I wanted to ask you because um, what changed? I mean, if uh, if you were a person who set your own expectations a little bit lower when you were younger, and then I know you got through the Georgetown program well, and you could do anything you wanted, but that doesn't mean you would. You decided to go after these places like Goldman, and we won't make you go through your resume here, but you were doing you were doing well in that world, and then you decided to sink your teeth in entirely into diversibility. So first of all, how do you decide to give yourself permission? to just go in and write, you know, write the jugular of finance and then and then throw it away and say, well, forget it. My real my real mission is this other thing that I created at Georgetown. Mm. There are a couple of questions there. So first, first, I I actually do think that starting diversibility, which which at its core, the, the best way I explain it to like our corporate partners is that we're like a disability employee resource group that exists outside of a company. An employee resource group is just a community. It's just like the student club I created 14 years ago, but we all have different words for it now. So, but as a function of getting to meet other disabled students, it made me realize I had a voice. And when I could see, you know, if I look at some of the disabled alumni of Georgetown, one of them is Amy Mullins, who was like a Paralympic athlete and, you know, motivational speaker. We have a great we have a great track record of disability advocates coming out of Georgetown. So I 
I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that community is not a nice to have. It's a must have. And it really helps. It helped me find my voice so that I could unlock all of these other pathways for my advocacy as well, which comes back to the shift, which is, you know, my personal mission in life. And I think I saw this on someone's Instagram bio, which then I adapted for my own, which is how can I use my power and privilege to fight for more equity? How can I use my power and privilege to fight for more equity? For me, it's disability equity, but you can think about what area of life you want to fight for more equity in. And one of the things I really thought about, and this is something, you know, at Diversibility, we say we're a community, but we're also really focused on reinvesting money back into the community. So it's not that much, but I'll, I'll share our numbers. Um, we have, we have, and I don't know, uh, sorry, I'm like caffeine coming in. <laughs> so, so for me, it's, it's, it's been over, it's been like over $130,000 that we have reinvested directly back into the pockets of our disabled community members. And I think for me, the fact that I, and I don't feel like I threw anything away. I actually think that my background in corporate is an asset to to everything that I'm doing now. The fact that, you know, uh, not maybe not a Goldman, but I've been able to speak at other large financial services firms about disability inclusion. Um, and it really, and at Goldman, not only was, you know, Gary outspoken about his disability, they also were my first introduction to disability employee resource groups and the power of being able to have access to those within your companies. So, so yeah, I think for me, a big part of it is how can I take some of the things that I learned from corporate and bring them into more of a grassroots advocacy space, but also bring everyone that I used to work with along with me on this allyship journey, right? Because I really do believe that allyship, all, true non-performative allyship comes from intimacy. It comes from, Jay, you and I meeting in 2018 and staying connected so that you can see all of my updates over the years. Um, I actually did post the rock climbing video on LinkedIn, but, but like you got to meet me and meet my story. And you're not just like, oh, that's Tiffany who can only use one arm. You're like, wow, she's got this whole other background of Georgetown and, you know, her parents making decisions to buy a home in Bethesda and all these other touch points in between that like, that's how we, that's how we move things forward because yeah. And, and so I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that I had those experiences and that's not to say that I won't, I won't go back there eventually, but, but yeah, it's been, it's been a good journey where I feel like I am able to marry, to marry the two worlds and bring some of the things that I learned. You certainly have, uh, this broad ranging impact and you're and you're making it in several ways. I mean, within the community, as you said, you know, you have over 80,000 people there, but it's also a conversation that you're having. Um, you're doing that broadly through social media, which I'd love to ask you about and also philanthropy um, and diversity is not a not for profit 501c3. I don't believe I think it's a we're, uh, we're now a hybrid. You're a hybrid. Okay. So you've chosen that as the, as the way to make social change. Um, can you talk a little bit about 
where uh, the conversation, you know, uh, leveraging that conversation through social media fits, as well as where philanthropy fits, because those are two very different en uh, engines of change. Yeah. So I, I love the idea that everyone's advocacy looks different. And one of the things I encourage people to do is to think about where your spheres of influence are and determine what your pathway for advocacy is. So a great example of that could be that I studied finance and accounting, and I'm not an expert in finance, but I feel like I have a good handle of what we can do with money. I don't know. That seemed like a weird thing to say. Well, we'll keep that in though. <laughs> um, and, and that encouraged me to look at philanthropy, but in, in creative ways, I guess I'll say. So two of the initiatives that we have, one is called the Awesome Foundation Disability Chapter. And I think I've shared this stat before, but only about 2% of philanthropy goes to disability advocacy. And when I saw that, and I saw that disabled people are 15 to 20% of the world's population, that seems like a very large gap. So how can I use my sphere of influence, which is under like money and finance, how can I do, how can I take that to reinvest back into the community? So two things I thought of with the Awesome Foundation Disability Chapter, these are $1,000 monthly micro grants. Diversibility got started with a $500 grant called a Reimagine Georgetown Grant. As a senior in college who had never had, not never, who had, who felt like I didn't have anyone believing in me to do anything, Receiving five hundred dollars was more than was worth more than five hundred dollars to me. Uh, the the people who awarded me the grant were my fellow peers, so to be able to have someone else put a vote of confidence in me that this club should exist, even after I went out and asked all these other people to join my club, that was worth that was priceless. So I kind of take that model of knowing that I don't think I would have started Diversibility if we hadn't received that grant into what we're doing with the Awesome Foundation Disability Chapter. And to date, I think we've awarded almost $80,000 in grants to projects across 10 countries. But the other more unique one was a couple of years ago, I was looking at how endowment funds were set up. And I really liked the idea that you didn't have to consistently go out and fundraise. It was one large seed amount, in this case, 100K. And you would go and raise that. And then a small percentage of it would get distributed every year, about 5%, with 95% getting reinvested in the market for market returns. And this is me with my like finance hat on, but this is like how I want to be able to marry like the things that I've learned. So I agreed to put part of that seed amount down. And then we went out and kind of crowdfunded the rest. But what I love about it is that this fund, which is called the Disability Empowerment Endowed Fund, is going to e exist in perpetuity. So perpetuity, probably not something you ever want to see in a contract, <laughs> but perpetuity here means forever, you know, for those who aren't familiar with these terms. So the fact that a disability fund will exist, and this is, it's at Georgetown, a disability fund will exist forever at Georgetown is huge. And, and one other thing I'll share so many things I want to share. So 2009, I started this disability club, very limited support, a $500 grant. 
And in 2012, another student, Lydia Brown, did a lot of advocacy work to create a disability cultural center at Georgetown. Diversibility after 2014 didn't have a leadership transition. Lydia graduated in 2015. And in 2017 at Georgetown, I know I'm throwing out a lot of dates, but keep in mind 2009, 2012. Now in 2017, we have a disability studies department on the undergraduate level. Just a couple of years ago, we launched the Disability Cultural Initiative, which supports the Georgetown Disability Alliance. That's that's what diversity was trying to be. And it was just announced in September that a disability cultural center is going to be created in November of 2023. And so I like to believe that even if you feel, and this is a good message, I guess, for your listeners, even if you believe you are the only one out there fighting for your cause, chances are you are planting some seeds for someone else to pick up that budding flower, maybe many years down the line, right? I would have loved to have been a student and had a disability cultural center, but we had, we, I tried to create a club and I had four people, four people, you know, Um, but because I tried, I think it opened up pathways for the later generations to come on and take that baton and carry things forward. I I love the sound of that because you can make big things happen with small, um, very small, very humble beginnings, but it also means that you have to stick at them. And that's what not only you, but others have done in order to make that possible. It's also telling and retelling your story, which you've done. You've been generously willing to do not only your your personal story about your own origin story, but um, you've been out there just talking about all these issues and sharing with people. And part of that has been through TikTok and other places, yeah. right? I, I forgot you asked me about social media. So very quickly on social media, one of the things that has emerged over the last couple of years is that if we can't get the mainstream traditional media to share our stories in a way where we are not framed as a tragedy or framed as heroes, we're going to be that in between. And I think that social media has given many of us a microphone that other people didn't for a really long period of time, you know, and I even have some people coming to me and they say, Tiffany, did you start diversity because your social media got big, Uh, which would be a natural, a natural order of things. Right. And so I love you know, I I just recently went to a talk where this woman said the, the three P's are is what should drive all of us. And the three P's are passion, persistence, and purpose. And a lot of so again, I thought it was funny that people thought I started diversity, but other people will come and they say, How did diversity become successful? And I say, I think it's because I outlasted everyone else. <laughs> Um, I've been doing this for a long time, Jay, you know, and, and I think that if you are able to find something in your life that you are willing to do for a really long amount of time, even if you don't get the visibility that you want or the recognition or accolades. And, and I will say now it's all coming. We're getting a a level of visibility that I would have dreamed about 10 years ago. But that's okay because I cared so much about what I was trying to do. And I really believed that it needed a place in the world. 
The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at donorsearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.